All right, we're continuing our study from Genesis, looking at the life of Abraham. We've now reached chapter 18. I'll be reading verses 1 through 16 this morning. Genesis 18, 1 through 16. And the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham Abraham ran to the herd, and he took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. I've entitled the message, God is a Rewarder of Those Who Diligently Seek Him. I'll explain what I mean by that momentarily. Last Sunday afternoon, we finished our our study of God's expansion of revelation of covenant with Abraham, which is found in Genesis 17. We observed the sovereign character of God expressed in the covenant that he enacted with Abraham, noting that God operates with sovereign independence in determining every providential means, every circumstance which attends redemption. We also noted that God's sovereignty is revealed in his gracious covenant of redemption as we observe him bringing redemption to reality by his transcendent power alone. And we noted that Genesis 17 teaches us that God is revealed as sovereign over his covenant in that he reserves to himself alone the right of elective choice in redemption. Now, in Genesis 18, we come to another narrative of a remarkable incident in the life of Abraham. The patriarch has just received the sign of circumcision and a renewed promise of the coming of Isaac, but God is not willing to let Abraham slip back into struggles with unbelief, and he determines to visit Abraham. This visit is varied in its purpose, But since God clearly operates to make Abraham aware of his visitation, we are meant to understand this visit as pertaining to Abraham and God's covenant with him. Even the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which follows this divine visitation, 
is to be understood in relation to God's gracious covenant with Abraham. We'll get there eventually. Now today as we examine the beginning of this visit, I want to draw out just a simple lesson. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now up until this time, I think we can reasonably argue that we have seen an emphasis in the text which presents God as seeking Abraham. But when we reach Genesis 18, that is true, but there also seems to be a new emphasis of Abraham seeking God. As Abraham seeks God, he presents himself to the Lord with a spirit of humble service and obedience, and in so doing, he receives a gracious reward from God. Now let's go to the text and see if that lesson is in fact there to be discovered, that I'm not, as they say, laying it on too thick. Lesson number one, God graciously initiates and drives the creature's seeking. In Psalm 53, David says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. What does he see? They've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Now the Apostle Paul picks up David's line of thought, quoting David. Paul expresses his words somewhat differently, but he's still in full agreement with David when he says this in Romans 3, 9 through 11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Now, having read these verses to you, I think you have to immediately ask, is Tom's premise wrong? In Genesis 18, do we really have an example of a creature seeking the creator? Well, Paul has indicated that the father of nations, Abraham, is a Jew. Like every other pagan nation around him, he's not different in terms of being under sin. The Jews aren't any better off in terms of intrinsic redemptive value or advantage. Nevertheless, in this passage, I think we see Abraham engage in an unmistakable act of seeking God. Now, how do we explain this in terms of David's and Paul's thinking? Well, the answer is in the text. Notice how it begins. And the Lord appeared to him. It was not in the context of Abraham initially seeking that the Lord was discovered by Abraham, but rather in the act of God revealing himself to Abraham that Abraham's seeking finds its origin. Christ told his disciples, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that that fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's John 15, 16. Now carrying that thought into what Christ is saying into the moment of Genesis 18, we see that God revealed himself to Abraham so that Abraham would see him in order to seek him. And notice how he revealed himself. We're told that the Lord revealed himself. The Lord, all capitals, L-O-R-D. The capitals remind us that it was the covenant God of Abraham who revealed himself. This was not the same manner of revelation with which God would reveal himself to Sodom and Gomorrah as their divine judge. 
The Lord, Jehovah, the God of the covenant, Yahweh, has revealed himself with grace and mercy to Abraham. Now I bring these things to your attention so you'll see that those who seek after God do so because it's God who initiates and drives the revelation of himself to them. We don't discover God. God reveals himself. He's even set up the very creation to declare himself, as David reminds us in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now, as we contemplate this truth, we learn How very gracious is our God. If men are to seek God and be saved, then God must first be pleased to effectually seek them and declare himself to them. He's not obligated to do so either. It's due to no fault of his own that though he's declared himself in all creation, men choose to suppress the truth in unrighteousness and worship the creature rather than the creator. That's not God's fault. God proves himself good and gracious in that he's pleased to pour out mercy upon the creature, the creature who's at enmity with him, by first seeking out that creature and choosing to put his love upon that creature and cause him to become a seeker of God. As a second lesson from the passage, notice that God sets up the very circumstances that compel the creature to seek himself. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now a somewhat deeper reading of the text reveals that when Abraham looked up, he saw that the men were near enough to see, but that they were not immediately close by him. The text tends to to present this idea that he could see them, but they weren't immediately close by. How do we know that? Because he had to get up and he had to run out of the tent shade to meet them. God had created a circumstance in his revelation of himself to Abraham, which required that Abraham literally get up and run out to him seeking him. Abraham was not allowed to be passive in the discovery of God. God drew Abraham to himself across a short distance, and Abraham's feet were put to a run. In God's revelation of himself, he created a circumstance which engaged that man in the activity of seeking, going after the Lord. God expected Abraham to come out to him. That was the given, the decree, you might say. God had decreed not only his revelation of himself and Abraham's discovery of that revelation, but even the very providences which he had sovereignly appointed, those were designed to stir up Abraham and to quicken Abraham's seeking. No part of this encounter is without purpose. Nothing is incidental. It's all orchestrated by God to make Abraham a seeker. Now, Abraham actually notes that God's act of revelation and the attending circumstances, he notes that they are intentionally purposed by God to engage him in service to God. He does this in the text. Where so? Where does he do this? Note Abraham's word in verses 3 through 5. O Lord, 
If I have found favor in your sight, he says, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, wash your feet, rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you've come to your servant. That little word translated sense in verse 5 is significant. It would probably be better translated as therefore, or for this reason. Abraham's words demonstrate to us that he recognizes the purpose of God in revealing himself to the man. God had revealed himself to Abraham and exactly at the time he had, in the way he had, so that Abraham would run out to meet him and bow down before him and serve him. And Abraham did indeed run out to meet him. There's significance in that recorded action as well. That leads us to a third lesson. The third lesson is this. When God reveals himself to the creature, he reveals who he is and not simply that he is. Now, there are many philosophers and religious figures in this world who through the ages have recognized that there is a God. But most do not know the one true God. They don't know the one true God because he's not revealed himself in terms of who he is to them. This this was not true of God's revelation of himself to Abraham. He had first declared himself to Abraham in Genesis 12, and that revelation was personal. God declared himself as the God who blesses. He made sure that he revealed himself to Abraham as a rewarder from the beginning. The promise of the reward preceded, it preceded Abraham's obedience. Listen to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when God introduces himself to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. In Genesis 18, in this text, we see that Abraham recognized the God who had promised reward. That was this God. In Genesis 18.2, we read that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. That's the phrase, lifted up his eyes and looked. The sense of the original language is that Abraham saw something significant to him and intently looked at it. The words are meant to convey the idea to us that Abraham recognized something worthy of intense scrutiny. When he reaches the three men, he bows down before one of them in particular immediately and addresses him as Lord. Note verse 3. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now this word translated Lord in English is not now Jehovah, or Yahweh, as before, this word is Adonai, that is, master. This is a title which a Jew spoke to address God alone. Abraham had received revelation from God which conveyed knowledge of who he was. This was no ordinary greeting for some passing strangers. Now, perhaps it had begun, it had begun in Abraham's mind with, with this fleeting thought, with a, def, a decision to provide customary uh, 
hospitality. Initially, perhaps he thought, well, I need to show hospitality. But very rapidly, such a mundane observation is discarded as Abraham becomes convinced in his heart, in his very spirit, that this is God. This is the God, the one that I know. This is the man of God, brethren, Jesus Christ, very God and very man now standing before him. And he's intensely aware of this. Abraham probably didn't know that the promised seed stood before him in this pre-incarnate theophany of the Son of God. I don't know what he would have done with himself if he had had that much revelation. Probably didn't know. But he knew that this was God, the God who had graciously enacted a covenant with Abraham and promised him reward. Abraham recognized his God personally because God had revealed himself personally. And so we see that the incident of this divine visitation in Genesis 18, it teaches us that the promised reward of God, this promise of reward, which the seeker of God seeks and enjoys, that reward, part of that reward, is who God declares himself to be. That's a piece of it. When he causes the creature to seek the creator, God does not leave the creature to his or her own devices of investigative discovery. Were that true, none would seek, none would discover, all would be lost. Rather, God graciously, proactively engages with the creature to reveal to the creature the excellency of covenant with himself. He reveals that he is a good and generous God. In revealing himself personally, he gives the creature every reason to admire and desire to seek and know this redeeming, rewarding creator God. Why does the creature seek God? Because God presents himself with a beauty of holiness and with a treasury of loving kindness to the creature and then he causes the creature to recognize that beauty and desire that treasury. Now we see this demonstrated in Abraham's words and actions in Genesis 18. As a fourth lesson of God's revelation of himself as a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, we note that this, this circumstance of God drawing near to Abraham, it was a test of faithfulness as well. This was an opportunity for faith to be expressed. Seeking after God is an act of faith. There's no seeking after God apart from faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Hebrews 11.6 You see, Abraham's actions prove out the doctrine of the writer of Hebrews. Why did Abraham run to meet the men? Why did Abraham leave the comfort of the shade of his tent entrance and run out into the heat of the day of the Sinai wilderness? Why did Abraham, or I guess it's beyond the Sinai, it's much further west. Why did Abraham bow himself down in the dirt? Why did he act so diligently, so quickly, with a, a kind of fervor you can hear in his words, to serve and to uh, uh, stir up his household to get busy serving. Because Abraham believed in what God had declared of who he was to Abraham back in Genesis 12. He's made promises to me. God had declared to Abraham that he was a gracious rewarder. Abraham believed God's revelation of himself, and so faith acted in the patriarch, stirring him up to draw near to God and serve him with expectation of reward. 
In Abraham's mind, the special presence of God right here in Genesis 18, it was an opportunity not to be squandered. If God had chosen to draw near to Abraham, then Abraham would diligently pursue God and the reward that was promised in drawing near to him. Now, some years later, his grandson Jacob would act on this same sense of opportunity and the same kind of faithful insight into the nature of God as he revealed himself. Jacob would wrestle with God, unwilling to let him go until he had received the blessing. Now, let's not forget that in both cases, the blessing was given. Now, before we talk about that lesson of the text, let's just note that there is no true seeking of God without faith, without hope of redemption and resting in the grace of God for atonement through the blood of his son. No seeking of God has really occurred. Now, this is important for us, especially for those of us who grow up in the community of the saints, in the church. It can be very easy to settle into a position where it feels comfortable and it feels like I have a security in Christ, a security in covenant with God, and have no faith attending that security? Am I just seeking God by filling a pew? Is that sufficient seeking of God? Is expectation of reward showing up on the Sabbath and singing? Well, for God's people with faith, it is. It's not the seeking that's rewarded though, brethren. Remember this as well. It's the discovery of God to the seeker that's rewarded, and that discovery is the reward itself. God's revelation of himself comes with a faith that he produces in the redeemed so that they fulfill the requirement of covenant faithfulness. He literally makes them recipients of the reward, or they can't even receive the reward. Nothing is left for the one rewarded to accomplish. If we seek after God, it's because he first seeks us. If we seek after the one true God, it's because he reveals himself to us. If we seek that God humbly in consideration of our sin and need for humility, our need of that requirement of sanctification, if we do that, it's because of the fact that in God revealing himself, he's also revealed to us ourselves. If we approach that God with hope and expectation of grace and mercy, looking for that gracious reward, it's because God has given us faith in the promised Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who will buy us back from the curse of condemnation for sin and give us the reward. If we receive the blessing of grace from God, it's because he graciously gives without any reward from the creature, receiving nothing from us. From start to finish, I hope you see the point I'm making, from start to finish, from the seeking to the finding, from poverty to reward, God accomplishes it all. Like Abraham, we are the most thoroughgoing debtors this world will will ever produce. That's us, brethren. Now here then is the final lesson of the text which I want to point out to you this afternoon. God will not fail to reward those who diligently seek him. What he promises, he always fulfills. He's not like men. His word is not conditional on circumstances outside his control. He's not like men. A person may promise us something good or something necessary, and even in good faith, fully intending to fulfill that promise, 
only to be stopped by power and circumstances outside their control. They can die. They can be stopped by greater powers. They can have their ability to fulfill the well-intentioned promise removed against their will. But not our God. There is no power that can hold back the gracious fulfillment of our God's promised blessings. It's not possible. This is no man. People change. They waver. Their lives, their circumstances can be altered. Their memories can be lost. Their good intentions can be forgotten. Their very personalities are subject to change. Their feelings toward us can alter. Their ability to fulfill, fulfill their promises, we say, can disappear. But not our God. He does not change. His word is tied to his very nature so that he can as, as, e- as easily fail to fulfill his word as he can fail to be God. Our God's loving kindness is therefore steadfast. It does not change from moment to moment or even over aeons. What he purposes and promises to reward does not change. When he promises to reward and how he promises to reward is not conditional upon us or any other created thing. His declared purpose to reward us is more trustworthy than our desire for that reward. We waver. We change. We devaluate the reward. We devalue the reward. He does not. He does not change. He does not devalue what he has given us. And finally, consider this thought. He's not a man. He's he's just. (laughs) You wouldn't think that those two things, many churches don't think that those two things stand in opposition to each other, a man and just. But we live under the fall. We live under the curse. There's none righteous, no, not one. Our God, however, possesses an infinite holiness and justice, a perfect righteousness in himself, which secures the excellency of his word. Let God be true and all men liars. People lie and cheat and scheme. They choose to disappoint and deceive We ourselves, we're told, are possessed of a heart that is desperately evil and can't be trusted, can't be known. We have tongues full of poison and malice and deceit, but our God is not like us. He's the thrice holy. Not even the heavens are pure in his sight. So just and holy and reliable is our God in giving his word that doubt and unbelief is deeply offensive to him. There are many times when we read about God's wrath being aroused against Israel, stirred up against Israel, times when he broke out in judgment against her because she questioned his faithfulness and complained about the reliability of his word and the goodness of his intentions. Such doubt and complaint, that complaint was was infidelity denying the very justice and holiness and veracity, the truthfulness of God. God is not to be questioned, only believed. And with such a certainty of faith in his steadfastness and righteousness and faithfulness that we've even come to a place of saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the kind of trust God expects from his people. And his nature is worthy of that trust. The promised reward, I'm simply trying to tell you, the promised reward is certain. It is certain. 
Our salvation is accomplished, and we may even already consider ourselves as glorified, so certain is the promised reward of full and glorious redemption. Abraham diligently sought God, and God gave the blessing. Jacob's wrestling went on all through the night, brethren. This is where we weaken. We don't like wrestling all night long. It's it's not in our nature to wrestle all night long. We wrestle a few minutes and then we're ready for someone to throw in the towel. Our God is to be trusted as faithful and not like a man all our lives. Brethren, the wrestling of Jacob's night is our entire life. Adonai is to be served. He's worshipped and trusted by Abraham. There's our example. And having graciously received the food from Abraham, what do we discover in verse 10? Immediately he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. There it is. Now it's the promise of Isaac, isn't it? Declared once more. The reward is promised. But there's a beautiful, brethren, there's a beautiful nuance in these words which is lost to us in the English translation. The English translation is not very accurate, not in terms of a word-for-word translation. Rather, it's an attempt to interpret the intent of our Lord in uttering these words. Now, I've attempted to capture the deeper meaning of the words with this paraphrase, which is closer to the word-by-word translation. Listen, the Lord, the Lord Jesus says... I will surely return to you when the time of revival of life comes around again. Mic drop, right? I will surely return to you when the time of revival of life comes around again. How can we hear those words and not hear a prophetic utterance, a declaration of the Son of Man coming as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world? In that statement, we hear the promise of Jesus Christ from his own lips to provide reconciliation with God so that God's people may be raised from the dead even as he'll be raised from the dead. Abraham received not only the promise of Isaac in that moment, he also received the promise of the Messiah from the Messiah, the ultimate seed promised to Eve, and to Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Just because he got off his backside, ran out of the shade of his tent, and bowed at the feet of Jesus. Now as I conclude, I hope that this this curious incident in the lives of Abraham and Sarah has reminded you of God's declaration of himself to you. He has declared that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As we learn from the life of Abraham, he is worthy of our trust. We are not worthy of his loving kindness and grace, and he is worthy of our worship, our service, the kind of faith that causes us to leap up and run to him and fall at his feet as Abraham once did. If you do that, you may be assured that he will come to you and dine with you as he once did with Abraham. In Revelation 3 and verse 20, Jesus declares himself the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How does he do that? He says these words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him 
and he with me. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Amen? Amen.